Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben, it's been all year. Well, it's been half a year. I guess we started We started half a year. I think we started around Mosiah 29, but we are finally at the end of the Book of Mormon. It is chapter... This We have one chapter this time. Yeah, I don't think we've ever had one chapter before, even some of the longer ones. I think I'd have to go back and look at what Come Follow Me says, but if we had done Jacob chapter 5, I think maybe that would have been a single chapter. But yeah, you know, chapter 10, very iconic very quoted chapter, probably the most quoted verses here at the beginning of any verses in the Book of Mormon, would you say? Yeah, verses three through five. Every missionary is memorized verse when they're talking to to people about the Book of Mormon, about Moroni's exhortation. And it's a fascinating chapter, especially in context with the rest of the Book of Moroni, because we have, I mean, this whole thing at the end with Mormon dying, and then the last two chapters of Mormon being Moroni's words. Then he bids us farewell. Then we get ether by memory. Then he basically bids us farewell again. Then he comes back thinking, hey, I thought I was going to, I was going to die, but I got six chapters, you know, micro chapters worth of stuff to say. And then I've got three epistles from my father. <laughs> and then I got, I got some more stuff to say. So it's just, it's really fascinating. These last few uh, chapters that we've gone over, but chapter 10 is beautiful because we have several themes that stand out. And obviously in verses 3 through 5, we have Moroni's exhortation. And then he gets into talking about how all good things come from Christ and point towards Christ. We have this several verses here on the gifts of the Spirit, and then a little bit on faith, hope, and charity. We have a few verses on unbelief. And then I really love Moroni's hammer that he comes out with. And he's always talking about, you got to believe what I say. And if you don't believe what I say, I'm telling you, I'm not lying. Nothing I'm saying is I'm lying. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to stand to get the judgment bar of God. And God's going to tell you I'm not lying. And yeah, I just, I, I absolutely love how fast he escalates this, right? <laughs> so he, we get a couple verses of that. And then we have another exhortation about coming into Christ. And then finally, 32 and 33 are some of my favorite verses in the Book of Mormon. And then finally, verse 34, he bids us farewell. So, oh, here we go. I I was I was also kind of laughing because I'm like, we got one chapter. I'm like, is this going to take, how long is this going to take us to get through this? I'm like, is this going to be like a two hour thing? Yeah, two it hour seems, episode. Two hour episode. Because, you know, when uh, we've gone over long chapters before and we're like, oh, this is going to take so long. And it may take like a little bit over an hour, but then we'll have something short and it'll take two almost two hours. I'm like, wow, we're, we're not expecting that. So anyway, we'll see how this looks this goes. But one of my favorite things about Moroni, and this also appears in, in Moroni chapter one. But here in verse 1 of chapter 10, Now I, Moroni, write something as seemeth me good, and I write unto my brethren the Lamanites. And I love, I absolutely love that. Seemeth me good. You know, this is a very personal 
a very personal writing that Moroni is now going to open up about what he values, about what he sees are some of the most important things that you can have. This is a very interesting window into the mind and heart and soul of Moroni. And the first thing he says after that is, and I write unto my brethren the Lamanites. Well, in chapter one, we know that the Lamanites are out hunting down to kill anyone who won't deny the Christ. And Moroni says, I won't deny the Christ. So at this point, we have Moroni basically saying that he's doing this for his brethren. And he doesn't label the Lamanites as enemies. He doesn't otherize them. But he's right there calling them his brethren. And I mean, this is some other level beatitude kind of stuff for me. But when he is writing this, and I would that they should know that more than 420 years have passed away since the sign was given at the coming of Christ. So not only that, but he's going to his brethren for the specific purpose of reclaiming them. He wants to reclaim them. Everything he's doing is pointing towards Christ. And we're going to see that Christ is a central figure here in pretty much everything that Moroni wants to summarize and sum up with here in this last chapter. Yeah, I do like that, how you brought up that he doesn't label the Lamanites as his enemies. Here in this chapter, he is specifically talking to the Lamanites. It's odd, it seems to me, that Moroni believes that this whole book that his father and him have put together is intended for the Lamanites, and they're the ones that are going to recover and benefit from it, if anybody. Because he starts in verse 3, he says, I would exhort you that when you shall read these things, if it be wisdom in God that you should read them. And when I read that this last time, I kind of chuckled a little bit. I'm like, you mean you and your father went through all of this and maybe people will read it and maybe they won't. (laughs) I'm going to bury this in the ground and maybe it'll be found and maybe it won't. It'll just sit here forever. That is a really interesting concept to me, you know, that he would just basically be saying, I'm doing and I'm bearing testimony that I feel God wants me to do. And I don't know who's going to read it. But if someone does, this is what I want you to know. It's a little Abinadi-ish, right? The Lord commanded me to do this. If you're going to kill me and nobody's going to listen to me, that's not my concern. I'm doing what the Lord commanded me to do. So it's it's just interesting there that um, he would kind of assume that the Lamanites, if anybody, would be the ones that would immediately receive this. While you know we have these cultural things surrounding who the Lamanites are or not, the point being that it was somebody who I, I'm fairly certain uh, Moroni would not consider Lamanites <laughs> uh, that recovered the record and were the first to receive it, right? You know, Joseph Smith and the, the American colonists, so to speak. So I just think it's interesting that this is what Moroni's thought and intention for this record was. And the Lord's sitting there saying, yeah, you know, Moroni, that's great. That's not exactly how it's going to work out, but you'll see in the end, (laughs) that it's for the best. So I I just, I think that's interesting. This phrase in here with verse three, uh, that ye would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam, even down until the time that ye shall receive these things and ponder it in your hearts. So this is quite a statement. I, this is a very profound way of putting something It's basically a contemplation method, right? I mean, I don't know if you and Riley would talk about, but you could talk about this verse here, that you basically think over all the Lord has done. And this puts you in a mood and in a place 
mentally and spiritually in order to receive revelation. And in that, you you ponder it in your hearts, it says, which I, I love that phrase. You could just sit with that for a while. I mean, this whole, these whole, especially verse three is all about contemplation, right? It's interesting here that he says that you go through this process and that's what prepares you then and puts you in the state that you need in order to receive the truth of the spirit, that that is really profound. If somebody's looking for a revelatory experience, they could do this, and I think that it would help prepare them for that. Yeah, I love how you brought that out, because in verse 3, he's not pointing us and saying, hey, listen, this book gives you every true point of doctrine. And if you listen to every point of doctrine, we've covered everything, we've included everything, and you got to believe everything that we've talked about. This exhortation, in order to come into a moment of truth, is about an experience, And what, yeah, what an interesting way to be able to exhort people to be able to say, listen, all this hard work we've done, everything that we've put into this, not just that they've labored to, to make the plates, to make the ore, to etch it in there, to preserve it, guard it with their own lives kind of a thing, and then bury it with faith that someone's going to come out and it's actually going to be used and it's not just going to pass away in the earth, but that you recognize if there's wisdom in God that they're going to read it, that your actual call is that you're calling on them to remember how merciful God is. And why? Why is that? Of all things that you could possibly invoke, why mercy? And then, you know, I think you covered it well there in pondering it in your hearts, because when we just sit there with God in his mercy, again, very beatitude, you know, God, Christ sits, and he turns around, he sits and, and, and mercy, there is the sixth beatitude. It's to simply sit there and to recognize and to be in that moment of mercy. And while you were there in that experience of mercy, of recognizing that you didn't do anything to bring this about, you didn't participate in this. Other sacrifices brought this about, but you've been given this in mercy. To sit in that mercy and let that become the, the spirit and the causing agent by which then we go into verse four. And when you shall receive these things, I would exhort you then in that state of mercy that you would ask God, the eternal father in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. Now, what I love about this is uh, one of the things I've been focusing on for the last few years is that truth is a very <laughs> it's it's a very controversial word <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> what is truth you know truth is this really 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 interesting word what is truth and everyone has an answer for that it seems to be that a lot of the ways that we emphasize and the way that religion emphasizes truth is truth in the things that we believe that we believe correct things Mm-hmm. That we have correct beliefs about things, right? And yet there's an often, and I'm not, I'm not speaking against that, but what I'm saying is that I think that's a little bit incomplete. I think there's an entire other world of truth that is purely experiential. Truth by experience. I've thought about Joseph Smith's first vision. And when he recorded in Joseph Smith's history, he talked about how he had this experience with God and that it happened, it was true, and he couldn't deny it. That he knew it, and God knew it, and he couldn't deny it. That this was the truth. Mm-hmm. And so it's in that where I started thinking about truth as an experience. Joseph Smith didn't believe as a belief 
of truth that he saw the vision. He actually experienced it, and that became a motivating cause for his action because now he had truth through experience. So when I read this and I see this whole this whole thing that if these things are not true, the Beatitudes and that coming into that state of mercy is an active state. This is not just that you're going to have true beliefs, but this is going to be that you're going to be brought into this contemplative mystery of God where you are now coming into a relationship and a conversation with God. And he's exhorting us to, to call upon God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ and ask him if these things are not true. And if you shall ask with the sincerity of heart and with real intent, having faith in Christ, the manifestation of this truth will come to you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Not as a dictum of true points of analytical axioms, right? Yeah. But you're going to be brought into an experience with the Holy Ghost where the Holy Ghost will give you the experience of truth. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. This really is this bringing about of truth as an experience where this often ignored experience with God is that is the manifestation of truth. We enter into that place where I know it's true, and maybe I don't even have words to say it's true, but nonetheless, I can testify of its truthfulness. I think it's such an amazing way to be able to put verse 3. It's only recently that I've even been able to read those three verses, and I've how many of us have read this over and over and over again? And yet... Even now, I just look at that in brand new eyes, having gone through the Book of Mormon like we have, trying to use the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as our hermeneutic. We've talked about that before. Trying to use this, the, the Christ's words and that cruciform hermeneutic as the filter by which we interpret this. And what has stands out here is just, it's just amazing. It is. You know, I was thinking about how, you know, the transition from three to four really makes me think of when we discussed prayer and and asking and questions. And I don't remember what podcast it was, but one of the things that I've realized is that so often when we're praying, at least when, when I'm praying and I may be asking a question, the, the process of prayer is, is actually the process by which I arrive at the right question. <laughs> and it's that struggling in the spirit to, to really ask the right thing. Um, so that the question isn't tied up with all of my prejudices and pride and, and ego and, and assumptions, but rather it's just a question that opens me up to the answer immediately. And I've found that in those moments where I've, I've really sought that, that it's basically what happens is as soon as the question I ask the right question, so to speak. The answer is immediately evident. It almost implied in the question. And I don't know how else to explain it, but by what you've been talking about, it just an experience. That it's kind of tied up in how verse 4 talks about this. That after you've sat with this for a while, and you're in a presence of understanding the character of God and his mercy— and you've pondered that and sat with it for a while, then you're going to know what question to ask. And as soon as you ask that right question, you'll know the right answer to it because the Spirit will be right there with you. And the question and the answer won't be different things anymore. They'll be the same thing. That's beautiful to me. And, and how these verses lay that out is more interesting to me now than it, it has been before. 
it really is no wonder that these are quoted so often. And, you know, the unfortunate side effect of quoting something so often is that it becomes common, commonplace. And so a lot of the, the more profound experiential truths about it can get lost in the lists we make about, okay, we got to first do this and then second do this and then third do this, you know, <laughs> right. thing. Just looking at those verses in, in a different way is, is very interesting to me. I think there's an interesting transition here in verse six as well. And when he says, and whatsoever thing is good, just and true, wherefore nothing that is good denieth the Christ, but acknowledgeth that he is. And following through in this contemplative concept is if Moroni is bringing us into this experience of God through this merciful state and through that being able to tap into the Holy Ghost and, and having the Holy Ghost bring us into that experience of truth. What an interesting next phrase to then say, whatever is good, just, and true. Wherefore, whatever brings us to Christ and acknowledges that he is, is good. Right? Because nothing good denies Christ. That's a really interesting litmus test of coming into that relationship, almost as if to say, when you're finally in that state where you're asking God, and, and I love what you said about prayer, and I loved that uh, episode that we talked about praying and having those questions, because best prayers that I have are the ones when I ask the right question. We've talked about it a bunch, and I'm like, oh. every time I think about a few of those times when I've asked the right question, I just get so excited because it's exactly like what you said. The answer is somehow manifest in the question itself. And it's not that the question itself is deceiving in such a way that it would produce the, the answer. But when you ask the right question, like for instance, and I've brought it up a bunch before when my wife asked me, what choices in your life would you make differently if you always knew, truly knew you were always already loved? And when you sit with that question, all of a sudden you start to recognize all of these choices you've made in your life. You're like, oh, I get it, right? The answer is almost implied in that question. That's a really good question because all of a sudden it hits at your heart when you really sit with that question and it hits your heart and you start to recognize all of these actions that you have springing out of this sense that we're not feeling God's love. But when we just take a deep breath and we reapproach the subject, we ask the right question and then we move forward in the love of God, our entire life changes. And so when I read verse six, I see that as that transition, as that kind of the conscious transition that when you were brought into this experience, this is what's good. This is what's of Christ. This is the whole thing that Christ came and he brought himself here with. And you may know that he it is by the power of the Holy Ghost. Wherefore, I would exhort you that you deny not the power of God. For he worketh by power according to the faith of the children of men, and that he is the same today and tomorrow and forever. Now, I know you have a little bit here to talk about power, and, uh, and and I'm absolutely fascinated to hear some more about it. And when we talk here with the Holy Ghost, that this is like this is coming into this moment where now we're experiencing this, this relationship with the Holy Ghost where we are experiencing something we don't even have context to. And when I've experienced it, it's always something I don't have context to, and I don't even know how to put words to it. 
when I've had these glimpses and these small things throughout my life. And and so these are the moments that are the most sacred to me because they're the ones I, I don't know how to explain as I've tried to explain it. It's just, it's not it. Like, I, I will <laughs> never be able to explain these moments that I've had with God. I've tried on a few occasions and a few of them are just abysmal failures. And, and the last few that I've tried, I'm like, no, I'm just never going to be able to do it. I can't. So I, I just, you keep those things. And I've come to understand a little bit when said that in Mary took these things and pondered them in her heart. Yeah. In Luke 2 and in the Nativity, I'm beginning to understand a little bit about what that means, where she she takes these things and she ponders them in her heart. She has no context or words to be able to express these things that happened at the Nativity. It's just this was so beyond human context. Same thing in the Book of Mormon when Jesus comes and so great were these things that you couldn't put words to it. It's the same kind of thing with this contemplation. And I think Moroni's trying to get us there. He's trying to get us into that place of saying, listen, if if we treat this text as it's supposed to be treated, it has the power of bringing us into that moment. On that topic of, of questions still, I was realizing that sometimes the it's not that the answer doesn't matter, but that the answer maybe isn't as important as the question. That we need to learn to see the beauty of the question itself for what it, what the question helps us experience. And because there's questions like that, like the one that you said that your, your wife asked you. There's, uh, like Alma asks in chapter, Alma chapter five, if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, can you feel so now? I mean, it doesn't really matter what you answer to that question because you can answer either way. The point is that you ask the question. Because then you get to think about it and reflect. And that's where the experience comes. And so sometimes it's not that these questions, you know, we're so interested in having answers to questions. <laughs> sometimes I think at least I need to be a little more satisfied with just sitting with questions and allowing myself to experience the question rather than constantly searching for an answer to that question. Yeah, I love that. You know, Moroni gets into a discussion here of spiritual gifts, and this is this is great. I have experienced, I believe, I'd have to go through of them uh, one at a time, uh, I believe most or all of some, some very obvious manifestations of some of these spiritual gifts, but I believe that they're far more common in terms of their less obvious manifestations. But I love how he says in verse 8 here, and there are different ways that these gifts are administered, but it is the same God who worketh all in all. I think this is a lesson that we can take to heart about how different people experience God and their faith in different ways. And we need to be more humble about how we express our experience as if it needed to be universal, as if my spiritual experience is going to be uh, universally applicable to others. Um, and then we need to take it in that way as well and realize that when others express their spiritual experience, even if it feels uncomfortable or odd to us, that that's okay because it's not our experience, it's theirs. And we need to learn to accept that for what that is and rejoice with them in the fact that they are experiencing God in the way that they're experiencing it. 
Yeah, what a, how, yeah, that was a great way to put that. I hadn't actually thought about that before. And, and I think that's so true because when we start trying to say that these experiences have to happen in this particular way, we really do cut ourselves off from so much that God has for us. And I've seen that in my life. And I've talked about it with prayer before that, that, you know, there was just this one particular way of prayer that was taught. And, you know, the, the formulaic way that we talk about praying, you know, formula, formulaic almost seem, is almost like a negative connotation. I don't mean to do that, but it's just the more formal way of doing it. Folding your arms, bowing mm-hmm. your head, kneeling, addressing Heavenly Father, you know, the gratitude, the thinking, and then in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So that is a beautiful way to communicate, but it's not the only way. But when we're in church, that uttered the main thing that we get out from that discussion is either that we either need to pray vocally the importance of praying vocally which it is important we should do that we've been elder holland has some great things to say about it then we talk about the praying in words silently and that's another thing that we talk about but then we kind of glance over a little bit and we talk about this whole praying you know in your heart throughout the day and and that's just one of those things that it's almost like a side discussion to the real discussion and when you're saying, oh, yeah, just kind of keep a prayer in your heart throughout the whole day. In other words, try to be good and try to think about God and, and that. And it's just, it's a weird discussion. <laughs> and throughout my whole life, I, I, I've struggled with that standard prayer, with that standard formulaic prayer. And it was later on in my adult life where I became aware because I was reading and studying, I just stumbled onto this whole tradition of ways of praying that I had been doing my entire life. And it just, I was like, oh my goodness, I, I can't believe this. I've been praying my whole life. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know it. Because it didn't fit into that specific religious context that you had, that had been spelled out for you. Yeah, exactly. And so I had to almost give myself permission to be able to say, it's okay. You, this is a, this is a legit, legitimate form of prayer. And it was so weird to me that I had to like give myself permission and, you know, talking with my wife. And I was like, she's like, well, just do it. And I'm like, are, are you sure? <laughs> Will God be okay with that? <laughs> and, and it's so ironic now that I'm, I'm thinking, of, you know, talking about, it. of course he is. But like you were talking about, these universal experiences that we have are just, these experiences that we have that we think are universal. Another one is feeling the burning in the bosom. Yeah. That's another one that was taught, especially, and, and it's not so much anymore, but it was definitely when I was a youth. I don't know if you had the same experience, but man, we'd hit that section in DNC and this is the way to feel the spirit. And you haven't felt the spirit unless you felt the spirit this way. And you'd always have some kind of testimony that this is the way to do it. And so I was like, wow, I guess I've never felt the spirit because I've never had that experience before. And then you're like, well, if I haven't, then I guess I've never felt the spirit at all. Then you get heartburn. You're like, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so it's one of those things as well that, yes, that is the way that Oliver felt it and he needed it. And that was what was good for him. I have known amazing people who've had that same experience. I, to this day, have never had that experience, and yet I have experienced God. And so, yeah, be careful in how we universalize our own subjective. So I love that you brought that out, that there are different ways that these gifts are administered, but yes, it is the same God that worketh in everything. In verse 17, another little part that I thought was powerful to consider. It says here, the last phrase, uh, and they come unto every man severally according as he will. And I think in the past, I read that as 
you know, it was the Lord willing whether he gave the gift to this person or that person. But uh, here, this pronoun is actually for the man or the person, so to speak, right? That those gifts of the Spirit will come in to us when we need them or according to our circumstances or according to just our individuality, right? That was a little bit different meaning for me than I had seen before. And looking at it now, it just seems so obvious. I'm like, why did I even think that that was referring that way? But <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really good catch because you know, Christopher Hurtado, who, who was subbed in for us a little bit before, and he'll be on the Contemplation podcast, he's a polyglot. He has multiple languages. I think he's got 12 languages under his belt, right? And he speaks multiple languages. And it's fascinating to be with him. You're like, no, you really don't know that many languages. And then he starts talking in them. (laughs) And you're like, okay, well, you do. And I hear him talking to other people all the time and uh, hanging out with him. And I was with him in one time where a, a religious professor of some repute had asked him, and like, I can't believe you know that many languages. It's like, how do you do this? And he said, well, I picked a language and then I just learned it. And he's like, yes, but how? (laughs) And he says, well, I took a class (laughs) (laughs) or I picked up a book or something. And it was, and for Christopher, it's so nonchalant. And yet I would consider him as someone who has, you know, a gift that I don't have. But the thing is, is I haven't applied myself in that way to be able to have an interest and to have a passion for doing that kind of work with languages. Mm -hmm. And he does. He's cultivated that gift and talent to where he is able to cross all over, cross boundaries all over the place and to borrow from traditions that I can't because I don't know the language, but he has that gift and talent and ability now. So when you, when you brought that up, Ben, uh, you know, even before we were recording, he came to mind and these, these gifts come into every man severally according as he will, that we often become the author of these gifts. We come into them and yet I think we have a little bit of trepidation in our religious culture where we feel that we have to be authorized to do this, as if Christ isn't there wanting us to come into these things. And so we have to wait until we're authorized or wait until we are allowed or given permission to do these things. I'm not going out of bounds for us to be able to assume priesthood authority outside of our context, but within our own sphere of living, find what is there for you with God and go for it cultivate these things in your life and bring God into that relationship because it's it's one of those things that I've had to really transition in seeing God recently as kind of an aloof person who I might have to make deals with or I have to kind of put in my effort and then God will be like, okay, well, I've seen you put in sufficient effort. Now I'll hear, I'll give you a few blessings. Whereas now I see God as this hyperactive, vigilant, loving, compassionate the father running after the prodigal son, willing to give everything and to bring all things into the, the awe and the conversation with him. And to fall upon the prodigal son and to put rings on his fingers and, and the, the, the best robe and to give him the best feast. That's a God, right? And so I think when we look at these gifts of the Spirit, we might be able to act with a little bit more confidence than we maybe think that we can. You know, I think that goes uh, very well into the next verses where he starts talking about faith, hope, and charity. You know, verse 21, he says, And except ye have charity, can in no wise be saved in the kingdom of God. I know we've talked about this concept before, but there's um, there's sort of a prophetic pattern as well where there's multiple times where prophets express their desire and hope, and Nephi outright says it, that 
many, and then he says, if not all, will be saved in the kingdom of God. And there seems to be this point of a person experiencing or or having charity where they truly do desire that every single one of Heavenly Father's children receives every blessing he is offering them. You know, they desire that all shall receive it, right? That's what we say. Right. And I I see this here. If you have not charity, can no wise be saved in the kingdom of God. Part of that experience of salvation is desiring that others experience it as well. So I think that's part of that experience. You know, you talk about how this salvation and, you know, we talk about the different kingdoms as being more of an epistemological type of thing where our perspective determines this experience. And I think that's where charity comes in in this in this context as well. Yeah, and even in verse 19, just before that, when he's saying, I would exhort you, my beloved brother, and that ye may remember that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that all these gifts which I have spoken, which are spiritual, never will be done away, even as long as the world shall stand only according to the unbelief of the children of men. So these are only going to be taken away if we don't believe. So there's this, that desire to come into them is what makes them manifest. But it's the fact that we don't want to, we step away from it, or we don't believe it, we don't want to come into that relationship of them. And so we don't cultivate those talents and our gifts. We prioritize our interests. If Christopher said, you know what, I don't want to learn languages, and he never applied himself, guess what? He never would have learned those languages. But yet we apply ourselves and we push towards those. Of course, we're going to develop those talents and those gifts to be able to step into that. So yeah, this, I love what you said there about uh, about the faith, hope, and charity as well. I think that plays a, a great part in that. So Moroni goes on here, and if ye have no hope, ye must needs be in despair, and despair cometh because of iniquity. And Christ truly said unto our fathers, if ye have faith, ye can do all things which are expedient unto me. This word despair has always fascinated me when taken, when we consider how it translates into other languages, particularly Spanish. So, um, <clears throat> in Spanish, the word for hope and the word for wait are the same. And so if you wait for some, for somebody, you're also hoping that they will come, right? And so I've always, uh, I've liked this, this concept of, of waiting or, or, um, anticipating, I should say, something to happen. Um, you know, waiting can be kind of a passive thing, but, but I think that hope is a little more of an active type of thing. In our language, though, wait has, has a passive connotation. So I see this despair, you know, this lack of hope right is is almost like impatience we don't we want something to happen now this made me think along the lines of what abraham chapter 4 verse 18 says i think we talked about this last time and this verse in abraham says the gods ordered all these things and watched until they obeyed in physics, uh, I'm looking back at my, my days, my physics classes days. I'm remembering that the formula for power, how we determine power is equals work divided by time. So, uh, what this means is that the faster you do the work, 
the more power it was done with. Okay, so if you do a certain job, if somebody does it in an hour versus two hours, the person that did it in an hour did it with more power. Okay, that's what we say. That's how horsepower is determined, all that. It's a it's a it's just a technical definition, right? But I, I thought about this in terms of how God defines power and that time is not a factor whatsoever in his power because just as Abraham says, he is eternally patient and he watches for things to obey. And even in the creation of the world, if it takes 5 billion years, it doesn't matter. What matters is that he's God and he commanded and he patiently watches for things to obey. I, I thought about this in terms of, of hope and how often we want something to be done within a certain time frame. So we get impatient. And when it doesn't happen in that time frame, then we despair, right? We, we get frustrated. We get angry or annoyed. And that that is not a gift of the Spirit of God. Rather, the gift of the Spirit of God is, is patience. And how that fits into the power of the priesthood is contrary to how the world views power. Power is what gets something done fast, but God is not interested in getting things done fast or in a hurry, so to speak. He's eternally patient. He has eternity to get his work done. <laughs> his power is not a function of time, right? So I I thought it was interesting in this context here to see that it says, And Christ truly said unto our fathers, If ye have faith, ye can do all things which are expedient unto me. And I think that means that I just need, if, if I really want to accomplish something, I need to have more patience. And I need to not equate my power or ability to get something done with how fast I do it. And that includes all kinds of things, but I think it includes especially how I treat others, especially my children, others in my family, and those around me, that I don't look at power as a function of, of my ability to get or persuade or get somebody to do something quickly. Yeah, I love that. You know, I, I'm thinking about the Sermon on the Mount right now when Jesus was talking about us not taking any anxiety for tomorrow. Take no thought for tomorrow. It takes care of the things of itself. Mm. And then he goes on this beautiful, this beautiful illustration about the lilies of the field and, and the birds of the air. He's, he's like, these things God takes care of. Will God not take also take care of you? You know, so I'm going to read it here. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for the body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than the meat and the body more than raiment? Now, there is a discussion here with this particular verse, and I want to do, I want to kind of clarify this as we're reading this, is because in an LDS context in the Book of Mormon, because I'm reading from Matthew 6, but in the Book of Mormon, when he's reading this, he turns to his disciples, and he's talking to his disciples, and so this has become, in, in kind of LDS thought, considered as a message only to the, like the apostles. Mm -hmm. And, but apostles as special witnesses of Christ doesn't exclude everybody else who takes upon themselves the name of Christ as well. They, they have a special distinction to taken apart. So that we've often thought about this verse about taking thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, as an actual physical calling that apostles are supposed to go out without purse or script just to be able to take care of them, that God will take care of them as they go out. 
Whereas I think this has far, far more to do with what you're talking about, Ben, where when we recognize that God is not in a hurry, that's not God's MO, that God is just God. And that when we come in and tap into that inner divinity, even within ourselves, and we begin to express our true humanity, that true self, which is God, that we're not in a hurry either. That that anxiety that we should be something else and we're not, we should be perfect and we're not. That we we should be we should be a standard. We should we should already be there, but we're we don't perceive that we are. I find that 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 right there, I think, is Satan. That voice is the accuser. That's where Satan gets us, hmm. because that accusing voice tells us you're not good enough. You're not powerful enough. You haven't reached the where you need to already. And anything that brings us down into despair because we're not good enough. And isn't that beautiful exactly what Moroni already told us? Whatever is good and tells us that we're good and that these things are good is of Christ. And those things that tell us that we're not good enough is Satan. And I think of Jesus now with the woman at uh, taking an adultery. Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Now, his injunction was, go thy way and sin no more. In other words, stop living in your false self and go out there and sin no more. Start living in your true self. But I'm not here to condemn you because you are here in despair. And so this whole, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body, this is a call for us to be able to take away the anxiety of the unknown not that we don't go to work, not that we don't plan for the future, not that we don't put away into savings and we, we invest where we need to invest or whatever. It's a call that no matter what you do, don't let your heart be troubled. Save for a rainy day, awesome. That's not in violation of this, but it's the heart by which we do it. Are we doing it out of a heart of fear and despair or are we doing it that, you know what, maybe my bank account completely crashes. Maybe... I lose everything. Maybe I have it in a non-FDIC to short account. My bank went, my bank went bankrupt. Whatever the, whatever happens, whatever. <laughs> Are you good with God? It's like President Nelson, that story that I love so much when he's on the plane, he's almost ready to die. And the, the woman next to him, he said, was just freaking out and she was nervous, but he was calm, thinking he was going to meet his maker. And that was it. He was complete, at complete peace. So yeah, when we talk about this hope, boy, I love what you said there so much. When we talk about hope in that in that way, we begin to really connect that in with all of these other verses. I like 23, the next verse, it says, And Christ truly said unto our fathers, If you have faith, ye can do all things which are expedient unto me. I really like the qualifier there. Because it's Christ coming out and telling the fathers, if you have faith, you can do all things. That's usually the phrase we hear. You can do all things. And like, all right, well, can I, with faith, can I fly? <laughs> you know, or with faith, can I live forever? You know, it, it, you know, it, we, our imagination begins to grow really big. But this, which are expedient unto me. And that's right when I think about Moroni uh, and going back into where Moroni was chastised in Ether 12 hmm. when he was trying to ask the Lord. He's like, but you haven't made me, you haven't made me powerful in writing. And the Lord's like, yeah, it's not expedient in me. Because was Moroni lacking in faith? 
that, that he didn't overcome his weakness. He's like, no, his faith was to be able to make whatever the Lord saw was expedient to bring out the expediency. And this is where I love the word perfection in Matthew 5.48, that whole be ye therefore perfect, even as our Father which is in heaven is perfect. That perfect there, the Greek word in the New Testament is telos, which basically means the measure of your creation. And this goes back to what you said about the universality of, of, of experiences, that we can't take our experiences and compare them with other people's experiences as if they need to have the experience we have, because my telos is different than yours. We're both human beings, and so there's going to be a certain level of you know, walking the path. But the telos, our ultimate manifestation, the way that we're called to be, is like all roads lead to Rome, but I need to be walking on my own road. So my telos is going to be different in some regards than yours, and everybody else is going to be different. And so we can't measure up to the people next to us. That's why this relationship has to be perfect, even as our Father in Heaven is perfect. We have to be measuring up to the telos in our relationship and the ultimate manifestation of our purpose with Him. So when we talk about, by faith He can do all things, which are expedient unto God. That's the standard. Whatever is expedient to God, not what's expedient by which everybody else in wall or earthly standards. But do you have a relationship with God that teaches you what and, and informs you what is, is expedient to Him? Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. The next thing that stood out to me in this chapter, verse 28, you know, you have this phrase here, his word shall hiss forth from generation to generation. This is um, kind of Isaiah talk here. And I, I looked up this word hiss, you know, the we only use the word hiss as the sound that a snake makes, right? Right. <laughs> or maybe some other animals. But I looked this up and there's multiple contexts in the scriptures where this word hiss is used. And sometimes it's in a negative context and sometimes it's in a positive context. But the most interesting and I thought the most applicable definition of this word in context was this, and it it was that a hiss is a sound that is naturally made to attract a person's attention. And so I thought that was appropriate for talking about how the Book of Mormon, or particularly he says his words, he says this will come as one crying out of the dust, should hiss forth from generation to generation, that it was meant to come forth and attract attention so that it could stand as a witness of Christ. That phrase caught my attention because I um, I didn't quite know what the purpose of using that that word there was. But then when I found that that definition, that it was a sound that was naturally made to attract a person's attention, I thought it was really an appropriate placement of that word there. Oh, interesting. Yeah, this whole 26 through 28, again, this is Moroni's escalation of like, I lie not. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And so this is, a, is, and I love 27, and I exhort you to remember these things for the time speedily cometh that you shall know that I lie not. He said that twice now. He said that in 26 and 27. Yeah. For you shall see me at the bar of God, and the Lord God will say unto you, did I not declare my words unto you which were written by this man, like one crying from the dead? It seems to be overcompensating a little bit, doesn't he? He's a little bit overcompensating. I'm like, Moroni, I really want to meet Moroni one day and, uh, <laughs> and, and ask him, I'm like, so, uh, so this verse and to see if he's like, yeah, I was having a little bit of a low day that day. Yeah, I was a little insecure. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't think he's that way anymore. You know? I don't think he's that way anymore. No, and, and, and to see how people progress, maybe he's not. Maybe I'm completely misinterpreting it, but that's uh, that's what comes out to me from it. And then in verse 30, I would exhort you that you would come unto Christ and lay hold upon every good gift and touch not the evil gift nor the unclean thing. What a great verse. The exhortation to come unto Christ. To come into this experience, and I've often wondered, like, what does that even mean to come unto Christ? Is this a, is this an absolute word? Is it an absolute phrase? Are we supposed to literally walk towards Christ? I mean, what does this even mean? But it's really in contemplation where I've found, at least in part, what this means for me. And that is not just trying to do the checklists every single day. And I think most of my life, that's really kind of where I kind of shelved that idea about what it means to come to Christ. Well, it just means you keep the commandments. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that you you follow all the rules. I'm like, is that life? Is is that what my life is supposed to be like? That I lived all the rules and then they were, those rules were supposed to make me happy? It's like, well, the rules keep you safe. Well, in a lot of ways, the rules do keep you safe. Um, keeping the word of wisdom, I never have to worry about drunk driving. Right. It's just, well, at least my drunk driving anyway. So there's a certain amount of protection that keeping the rules afford you. But in that particular way, okay, so certain bad things won't happen, but how do I make sure that good things do? And how do I, how do I come into the experience of God just by keeping the rules? Until finally I had to sit down at one point and just realize, man, I, I don't, I don't have a relationship with God that I think I do. And that was a really bitter pill for me to swallow the day that I recognized that my relationship with God sucked, that I talked a good game. I could talk, I could talk circles about God and, you know, this about God and that about God and this about the scriptures and that about the scriptures. But if I were to, if I I had never been in that ecstatic moment of being brought into the awe of God and I denied (laughs) When I first had that thought, I was like, no, that can't be. I've I've had that experience before. And then I try to think about all the moments and the experiences that I've had and and true spiritual experiences that I've had. And I was like, yeah, none of that is that. What is this thing? And so for me to come into Christ has become this, almost this mantra of being able to get rid of my own my own false self and to be able to tap in to the love of God. And by doing that, letting that light of Christ present itself and recognizing that we live, we live in a Christ soaked world. We, you know, it, you know, this is a very Richard Rohr thing to say, living in a Christ soaked world, at least in the LDS context, we can talk about this as the light of Christ, that everything manifests, everything manifests, you know, Alma, all things testify that there is a God. And so when we live in this world where we truly live in that experience, that for me is what it means to come into Christ is by living in the experience of God where I'm looking for those moments of either contemplation or of silent prayer or of ways that I can take my own ego out of this formula and being able to let God be God and then to allow whatever is present to come forward and just to trust it and to live into it and to let that be what I become. And that has had a more powerful effect on my peace and on the way that I am able to live than 
literally anything else I've done in my relationship with God. And I'm excited to see what comes next because I don't look at this as just a plateau that, you know, I've discovered it. I, it's like, I've, it's like I, I was reaching for a, a ledge above where I was at and, and I found a ledge and I pulled myself up. Well, I guess the metaphor is bad. Someone pulled me up. And so I'm there, not of my own abilities and seeing something new for the, for me and the experiences that I'm having. So when I, when I read this, Come into Christ and lay hold upon every good gift that hits me differently than it ever has before. You know, the, this is reminiscent. Uh, I mean, it, it basically alludes to the scripture where Christ says, you know, come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that is quite a thing to say when you're Christ. Right, <laughs> my burden is light. <laughs> what are you talking about? Right, initially it's like, what are you talking about? Yours is the, by definition, the heaviest burden there could ever be. That's what it means, right? Doesn't isn't that what it means to be Christ? To be the one who bears all burdens, and it's something paradoxical happening here or at least out of our ability to really express, but maybe just to experience like we've been talking about, that when we come unto this way that Christ is teaching us and we emulate him, that these burdens of the world, they go away. And all these things we've been talking about, you know, in terms of the anxieties and the the, the worry about this and the despair they can melt away in the context of our following Christ. Now, that's not to say that if you're experiencing any of those things, that means you're not following Christ. I don't mean to say that. I mean simply to say that Christ is the way by which we can take those experiences and add them to ourselves and have them mean something for who we're becoming and our relationship with him and our understanding of an experience with God so that those things aren't just mere suffering of our existence, but that they actually add to our experience of what it means to be a child of God as opposed to just a piece of uh, carbon-based life that's experiencing pain, right? <laughs> There's difference there. There's something different there. And it's the way of Christ that brings that out. I think that really comes to fruition in verses 32 and 33. Yea, come into Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. Well, there's that perfected word again. And if we take, if we, I mean, we obviously don't have the original source document for the Book of Mormon to be able to cross-reference what that perfected is. But if we're going to try to use that with the Matthew 548 perfection of the telos, in other words, come into Christ and fulfill the measure of your creation. Deny yourselves of all ungodliness. In other words, that false self that you have, that you live in, that ego-based false self that you think is really you, but it's really not, the, let go of that. So this for me is the poor in spirit thing. Deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all of your heart, might, mind, and strength, well, that, that right there is repentance. 
If you're learning to love God with all of your heart, might, mind, and strength, you can't do that without having to see God in a new way. That That is a necessary component to loving God with all of your heart, might, mind, and strength. So we have the giving over the false self, the repentance and seeing God in a new, and then love is there. And then it says, and then is his grace sufficient for you. And I've thought about that phrase for a long time and for so many years. Then is his grace sufficient for you. And the way that I've always, I've always like, I, I don't like the way that's worded. And it be, it's almost it denotes as if like God's grace is, can be insufficient for you. Is insufficient otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's where I'm reading it through this time. I'm like, well, of course, this makes so much sense. When we take into the context that we're always already worthy and we are simply living in the context or the, the epistemic view of our false self seeing ourselves in the natural man as the natural man, as though the natural man is our true self instead of our false self. And repentance is is seeing God anew. And because we see God anew, we have to see ourselves as we truly are, as that always already worthy being that is there that God sees. And as, as that, this whole grace sufficient for you is not that God's grace can be insufficient, but that when we finally come to the awareness of the true self, we begin to recognize the grace of God that is always already present, that it's pouring over us, and it's always been pouring over us, that it's not God that's been insufficient. It's been our own perceptions that have allowed us to, it's, it's the light shineth and the, the grace shineth in the darkness, as it were, where the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Mm-hmm. That when we've lived in darkness, we don't see what is already present in the light. And as we come to an awareness of the light and what we already are, then we begin to see that the grace is sufficient for everything to heal all the pain that we've ever had. We didn't realize it was sufficient before. Now we realize it now. And now once we come to the, we come to the recognition of it, that grace, which has always been there, we are now able to partake of because we accept it into ourselves, right? So then his, his grace sufficient for you that by his grace you may be per- perfect in Christ. Again, you, you may fulfill the measure of your creation in Christ. And if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ, you can in no wise deny the power of God. Because at that point, we have to recognize and say, I did none of this myself. It's the same thing in the Beatitudes. I did none of this myself. I simply let go of the false self. And everything that happened afterwards was God. And it was, it was always that. But it had to be the will. The will had to be sacrificed. The ego had to allow itself to be destroyed. And that allows God to then be able to purify. You know, we'll, we use the term purify, but it allows us to take that false self and to leave that false self behind. The same symbolism of baptism. Going down to the waters of chaos, destroying off the natural man, coming for, for the true self. It's just, it, it's so beautiful, Ben. I, I love this so much because it's so consistent throughout the Book of Mormon, and I've never seen it before as I have this time through. But to see it over and over and over again, and to realize just how much this message permeates and comes out of the text, it's just, it's so much better than I ever thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very appropriate that Moroni puts this right here with these last couple of verses, you know? It's like, hey, and by the way, I'm going to condense this all down. This is the message of the book. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and, um, you know, you were talking about purify. I mean, I think maybe in this context, he says in verse 33, then are ye sanctified in Christ, right? And, uh, you know, we've talked about justification, sanctification uh, quite a bit in, in other podcasts and other contexts. But I like what you said there about the perspective of his grace being sufficient. It's not that it's not it's not that it's ever insufficient. It's that it's whether we let it be, right? Whether we say to God, it's enough. I believe you. I believe that I believe Christ. I believe in him that he really is enough. And that if I will take his name upon me, that that will be enough. And the accuser tells us it's not the accuser tells us that it's not enough for us to follow Christ. We have to be perfect right now, immediately. And anything that we are doing wrong means that we're not really a disciple of Christ. We don't really want to follow him. So, you know, don't even try because you're not making it. These are all the voices of the accuser, all the lies that Satan tells. And so I love how Moroni puts this here, that, that when we are able to to slough off that false ego and that the that voice of the accuser, then we will recognize that the grace of Christ is sufficient for us. Yeah, that's good stuff. I mean, that that for me is the gospel. When we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, my whole life I've wondered, like, okay, what's good about this? What's so good? Okay, so we stay away from some of the bad things. Like, I don't get addicted to drugs, and and maybe I don't. I you know I'm I'm I don't have just a life where I have no morals or principles. And I think that's a lot of the way that we think about it. If I didn't have the church, I wouldn't have any morals or principles. But for me, it's like, okay, so now that I'm here and I live these standards, is is this it? It's like, where's this supposed good news? And am I living the good news? Yeah. And it's not that that's wrong, but it's a very superficial way yeah. of looking at it. Yeah, right. And so, but once I started getting into this, I'm like, oh my goodness, I, I mean, I get, and so when I, I read uh, King Lamoni's father, when he says, I, I'll give away all of my sins to know you and to know God. You know, when I've read that before, way back in Alma, I'm like, well, duh. You know, of course we give away our <laughs> sins to know God. I mean, that's just, that's dumb. I mean, what kind of sex? No, but when you truly recognize what's going on there and you realize he's, he's saying, God, I will give up this false self. I will give up the source by which I do all things which are against my true nature. I will become, I will, I want to come into the awareness and the recognition of what I always already am. And I will give up everything of which my false self and the identities and the ties of this world and everything that I've tried to belong and all the powers and all the ego trips and everything, I'll give everything up just to come into that conversation with you. And now I read that story and I'm like, that's good stuff. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what that ecstasy in God is. That's what that moment of being in the awe of God is like. When we're finally able to, and it comes in so many ways. I love that we brought up the question thing in this, uh, in, in this episode, because that's been a really big thing for me in coming to having these experiences with God is asking the right questions or asking good questions anyway. I don't know if they're the right questions, but asking good questions anyway, <laughs> because man, you, you sit in that and you're like, yeah. And there's so many different little things when, when I've learned to, to expand the way that I pray. And come into different ways of praying. 
and I'm such a novice. I'm such a noob. I, I, I'm, I'm like, I feel like I'm starting over in so many ways. And as, and the more I feel like I'm starting over, the more excited I get. Because at this point, I'm like, I, it's like, I'm not an expert on anything. In fact, I'm like the opposite of an expert. I'm like way over here in like the absolute beginning stages of everything. And I couldn't be happier in this moment with that. So for me going through the Book of Mormon this time and of being able to read all this and to come to these kinds of realizations, I've, reading the Book of Mormon a completely different in a new way has been an absolute exhilarating experience. I've loved it. Um, being able to discuss it a little more in depth and just, you know, dealing with my own thoughts, hearing other thoughts and allowing that to, to bring out um, different connections that I'd never made before and elucidate principles that, that I hadn't, uh, hadn't pulled out before, or hadn't just, hadn't seen it all in, in that light, in, in the light of seeing God in a new way is, is been great. You know, I, I love here how Moroni, he signs off, he bids farewell. This is like third time's a charm, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, I, I think I'm actually going to die this time, guys. <laughs> and so I'm going to, going to write this here. Okay. I'll go to, I soon go to rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and body shall again reunite. It's, it's such a beautiful euphemism for I'm going to die pretty soon here. <laughs> One of the best euphemisms I've ever seen for it. But then he says here, and I am brought forth triumphant through the air. So this made me think of Revelation 14.6, where uh, it says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto all those in the earth. And how, uh, as Latter-day Saints, in our tradition and culture, we take that verse of Revelation and we say, okay, the fulfillment of that prophecy is most likely the coming of the angel Moroni to deliver uh, or help bring forth the Book of Mormon. And it makes total sense, you know, in, in terms of the fulfillment of that prophecy in Revelation. But I like how it ties into here of Moroni basically like foreshadowing his future, you know, that he's going to be that angel that is brought forth triumphant through the air. I mean, he could just be alluding to something different in terms of how we uh, represent the resurrection in, in scriptural context. Um, but that's the connection I made with that. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. You know, and, and just as a side note, we didn't really cover verse 31, but uh, it says, And awake and arise from the dust of Jerusalem, and put on thy beautiful garments, O daughter of Zion, and strengthen thy stakes and enlarge thy borders forever, that thou mayest no means be confounded. And the covenants of the eternal God, I'm sorry, of the eternal Father, which he hath made unto thee, O house of Israel, may be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So just as an interesting plug, um, not to get into this, but that verse was really important to me when I was 14. My very first year of seminary, well, no, it was my second year of seminary, was the Book of Mormon. And I decided that I wanted to read the Book of Mormon before um, I turned 12, before I turned 14, and before I turned 16, before I went on my mission. And when I turned 14, I was a month behind. And I actually finished it on Halloween. It was the first time I didn't go out trick or treating with my friends, and I decided to stay home and read the Book of Mormon because I because I was behind and I wanted to get it all done. Your your fourteen year old friends went trick or treating. Well, of course. Okay, sorry, side <laughs> sorry, kind of a long tangent there. Of course. Okay, so okay, I gotta I gotta remember this. Okay, it was my first year of seminary. I was doing Old Testament, not Book of Mormon. I was finishing the Book of Mormon for for that. Okay, that's where the story is coming because I just came up with. A, I just remembered the story. 
And I read that verse, and it just happened to be that I had read that same list of awaken and uh, arise from the dust, O Jerusalem, and put on the beautiful garments, O daughter of Zion, and strengthen thy stakes and large thy borders. I had read that in Genesis. Abraham had said this. And I was like, wait a minute, we just covered that in seminary. So I cross-referenced that over to Genesis. And then from Genesis, I went over to, I think, Isaiah. And then from Isaiah, I went into, I think, Ezekiel. So this verse is covered in multiple locations in the Old Testament. Uh Yeah. And I'd never recognized that before. Yeah. Uh, I was 14. I was 14. So I went down to my parents and I'm like, guys, guys, do you see this verse? And you're like, it also is over here. And it's also over here. Have you ever noticed that before? And they said... (laughs) And they said, no. And it was the first time in my, in my life when I had found something, especially in the scriptures where I'd made a connection that my parents had never made. <laughs> and it was the first time in my life, right? So for yeah. whatever reason, that scripture. Unlocked. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a matter of a personal anecdote, that one verse for me has always stood out because it was the first time that I did something that, that my parents didn't know. And, and that kind of set me on my course of, of trying to find other things that I could possibly best my parents at with scriptures. So. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful poetic verse. You know, it's all over in Isaiah and stuff. So, uh, yeah, very appropriate that Moroni should bring it in here. Well, Ben, at this point, we the time we conclude. So our next episode, we are going to do a Christmas special where we are going to get together with Riley and Christopher. And we're all going to kind of talk about a few of the things about the Book of Mormon that we have loved. Maybe talk about a few stories prior to Mosiah 29, because that's where we kind of jumped in mid-year. We started recording was in Mosiah 29. It was very fortuitous that we were there. And then uh, give some stories, our favorite uh, Book of Mormon stories before Mosiah 29, and then give some uh, some contemplation feelings about Christmas. So that'll be on the upcoming uh Latter-day Peace Studies page, and so check that out. But when we come back with a podcast, this is the last one for this year, but when we come back, we're going to be doing Doctrine and Covenants and Church History. So that's going to be absolutely fascinating. Church history is is super interesting. Yeah, I think it's going to be a different type of discussion. You know, the Book of Mormon, we've got this narrative that we're following story-wise, and while there is some of that with, obviously, Doctrine and Covenants and Church History, it follows a, a different type of pattern. And so uh, the discussion is going to take a different form, potentially. Um, I'm very interested to see where it goes. I am. Me too. You know, we've kind of talked about it uh, off and on for the last few weeks because we know it it is going to be different. And I think there's going to be a little bit of a different feel to it. There's going to be a little bit of a different tone because you're right. I think it's the narrative aspect of it. So we're, you know, bringing in a few extra hopefully narrative-based things. I'm so glad that they made the saints. Mm-hmm. That's a great resource that we're going to be able to pull from and uh, and encourage everyone to read. Again, you know, Saints Volume 1, because that uh, that came out a few weeks. I have some stories there with that, but uh, good. Well, until then, I'm looking forward to it. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you, everybody, for listening.